You guys, welcome to episode 29 of The Smush Room, the podcast that deep dives on the well-known and more importantly, not so well-known hookups of your favorite reality TV stars. I am your host, Sissy Spacek, and um, wow, I don't really even know what to say about today's episode. I really don't. Last week, I like mentioned that I broke my own personal record for writing the most A, psychotic, and B, longest notes so far. I, again, broke my own personal record by like a fucking landslide. I truthfully at this point now believe that if I really like sat down and like sat with my computer and like became one with a cup of coffee and like really, I think that I could write a fucking novel at this point. Like I think that I'm working myself up towards writing like a Stephen King, like 40,000 page fucking encyclopedia novel, truthfully, because if you could see the amount of notes I took on this couple, you would actually be like worried. Like, I don't think that you would find it, like, admirable. I think that you would be, like, actually worried about me and wonder, like, is he a little, like, touched? Is he blessed in a special way that, like, you know what I mean? Is he a little, is there a little bit of Asperger's or something going on that makes him, you know, you would wonder. Because this is, like, not something that a normal person does. And I know that about myself. I'm, like, self-aware enough to know that this is, like, fucking insane. But, you know, I just, you guys, I get nervous because there are certain couples that, I feel like I want to talk about, but then I'm like, this is a couple that means so much to so many people. And if I don't do it justice, then like, what was the point, you know? And I'll never be able to like go back and listen to the episode. If I feel like I missed something huge, which of course I have in the, I've missed tons of things, but like, you know, when you miss like a couple things here and there about, I don't know, fucking flavor, flavor and Brigitte Nielsen, it's like people will live, you know, it's like not a big deal. But today, we're talking about Madonna and Sean Penn. And look, I kind of can't miss anything, you know? Like, I kind of have to, like, I have to get my, I have to really get my shit together. Like, I I almost wish that, like, for me to to be a successful writer, I would need to be, like, sort of, like, it would be, like, a Paul Sheldon situation. I don't know if you've ever seen Misery, but, like, it would require me to be in, like, the same, like, soiled sweatpants for, like, a month held captive in like a bedroom with a Kathy Bates type character that will every once in a while sledgehammer my ankles. You know what I mean? To just kind of keep me in line. And I really, I felt like I needed that with this because I was like all over the place. I didn't know like what to write and what not to write and what was important and what wasn't important. So I just wrote it all. I literally just, I just, I just retained all and I have all of it for you. And I'm so excited Madonna and Sean Penn is like, again, one of those couples that I wanted to talk about from like the very start, but your boy was scared. You know what I mean? I had to like work up the confidence. It's scary to talk about Madonna on a podcast that like deep dives like this. It's terrifying because there's just so much and she means so much to so many people. She means so much to me. Uh, so I'm going to try and do them justice. Um, oh, also as a side note, by the way, I also came to this realization today. Um, that I have a cough and I don't, I'm I'm not just like, you know, I I don't just like have, like I literally, I possess a cough. I realized today that I don't, I don't just like pick up a cough every once in a while. I just possess one and it's just part of who I am and I have to stop complaining about it because I don't really remember the last time I didn't have like a tickle in my throat. It's kind of just like part of who I am. So like that's my road to self-discovery. I hope that you guys are on a similar path. I'm like v- becoming very one with myself. I realize that I just like possess a cough. So when people say like, Oh, are you sick? 
instead of saying, oh, no, like I got a little cough right now, I'm just going to respond and say, no, I possess a cough. I'm not sick. I possess a cough. And I'm not going to explain any further. Everybody should know what that means. Anyway, you guys, so Madonna and Sean Penn, they started dating in April of 1984. And they got married on August 16th of 1985. And they divorced officially on September 14th of 1989. Um, this is also one of the only couples that I've ever talked about who filed for divorce. And then uh, they, what do you, I don't, I don't even know what you call it when you like, decide not to get divorced. I mean, I know that there's like a technical, like legal name. They withdrew it. They withdrew their divorce. That's not a technical legal name, but they withdrew their divorce and then they got divorced again. Um, this is easily like one of the most famous couples, I would say in celebrity history, one of the most highly publicized, one of the most iconic, to be honest with you, I think this couple trumps every couple I've ever spoken about on this podcast. Like, this couple makes every couple on this podcast that I've talked about seem like Megan Trainer and whatever that kid's name was that she like mouth kissed at that award show when she tried to become super famous. This is like everything else. Those are just fucking peas or whatever. I don't even know what that analogy means, but you know what I mean? Like they're nothing. They're peasants. They're trash, garbage. They're nothing in comparison to Madonna and Sean Penn. And there was also very famously you know, a lot of abuse allegations that Madonna, she recently debunked for the first time in like 30 years, but these rumors have followed them both around for a majority of their careers. Obviously we'll talk about it. It's a huge part of the relationship and it's a huge part of the sort of folklore surrounding this couple. Um, nobody will ever really know, you know, what happened. We'll never know if it did or if it didn't, I have my own theories and based on my research you know, I have some ideas and I'll run them. I'll run them by you. Um, Madetta, <laughs> Madonna dedicated her true blue album to Sean and she wrote a liner note to him. That was also pretty famous. Um, she also wrote a song that people sort of sleep on. I don't know why it's not talked about more. Um, but Madonna wrote a song on her, like a prayer album called till death do us part. The song is about her marriage to Sean and the lyrics are fucking insane and they're explosive. It's one of my favorite Madonna songs of all time. And I'm going to read them to you later because they just really fit into what we're talking about. Um, I also, by the way, with my entire heart, I don't believe we'll ever really know besides the abuse, like this marriage is so mysterious and that's like, I think why people are so attached to it because they were so public, but also so mysterious. And it all, it goes against everything that we know about Madonna, who she was in this relationship. And it feels very like, it feels like a very human moment in her life where like she didn't have it all together and she wasn't like, you know, she was like in an abusive relationship, this like strong, powerful woman who has, basically helped shift female culture for the past 30 years. And like, you know, it's such a, a strong, prominent figure in our society, like in the American like thread. Um, she was in an abusive relationship with some drunk, you know what I mean? Who sort of like dwindled her light and, and like dwindled her fire. And like, I believe that he was definitely her K-Fed, you know, you know, my theory, every woman has one. I think that Sean was, uh, he was Madonna's K-Fed. I think she needed to go through that experience to realize like how strong she actually was. And 
I think that she sort of like harnesses this like natural ability to like literally control the world. And I don't know if she was fully aware of that before him. You know, I think she needed to realize that she was married to a drunk that was abusive and like not really worth it, even though they are super friendly now. And Madonna does consider this to be like, you know, her first real love and one of the the true loves of her life. I mean, they, they look back on this relationship with like, with like a Disney filter, you know? Um, and I think that they both have this sort of understanding of how reckless they both were at that time in their lives. And it's this sort of like mutual respect that they survived this insane marriage and this insane sort of era in their careers. Um, and it almost kind of feels like they just kind of don't really hold on to anything that they did to each other. Cause I mean, let's be honest, like Madonna was no princess during this time. Like she was, it's Madonna. You can imagine like she was fucking with him mentally and probably doing crazy shit to him constantly to like make him want to fly off the fucking handles. And like, you know what I mean? I just picture this being a very explosive relationship, like on both, on both sides. Um, and this is, I mean, I don't know. It's one of those relationships that even with everything working against them, people still hold a candle to Madonna and Sean and people have this weird sort of like fetish thing that like, they will get back together. There's this thing in people's hearts that like Madonna and Sean will again be one one day. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I mean, I, when I see them together, I do get like butterflies in my stomach and it feels like mom and dad are like getting along, you know? Um, I don't know how much I would love them being a couple again, but like there is something really powerful about seeing Madonna and Sean Penn 30 years later exist as friends. I don't know. Like they've just been through so much and there's so many things that only they will know, you know what I mean? About each other that, you know, it's a, it's pretty spectacular. So without further ado, I think that we should start with our mom, the woman who raised us all. The woman who I believe is the reason that I was born to be a gay man. I was born gay specifically to appreciate Madonna in the way that only a gay man and a woman can. There's just something about the mix of energies that just works. And I would like to start talking about her in depth if we could. This means so much to me. I don't know if you guys even realize like how much this moment means to me in my life. But anyway, so right before meeting Sean, Madonna was like coming off of the success of her debut album, her self-titled album, which she basically, I mean, it launched her into being like an immediate icon. Like the Madonna album is... We'll get into it, but it's like, obviously, I don't really have to even explain it. It's like one of the most important albums in like pop history. Um, and a lot of us know Madonna's like beginning story. She was a poor girl. She was like living in New York. She was basically just like couch surfing and, you know, she was trying to get her music career started. In the super early stages of her career, she was in a band called The Breakfast Club. And The Breakfast Club was formed in 1979. And they started with Madonna actually as the drummer. And then Madonna met her then boyfriend, Stephen Bray, who um, ended up becoming like a really integral part of her career, especially in those early days of uh, early stages of her success. And, you know, while she was in the band, um, she also ended up performing as a vocalist and just kind of like trying out different things. It's weird to imagine a world where Madonna just ends up as like a drummer of some band. Um, 
<laughs> now, they were briefly signed to Gotham Records and ended up getting dropped by the label. And during that time, Madonna and Bray, her boyfriend, um, they were like writing songs together. He wrote three tracks for her that she would sort of carry around on cassette tapes and ask these DJs to play at, um, at like nightclubs. Um, one of the songs was Burning Up, a classic. The other was Everybody. Um, and then the last one was a song called Ain't No Big Deal. And I guess you could say Madonna is like, this is like her how I got discovered moment when she she basically convinced this guy named uh, DJ Mark Kamen, Kamen's or Kamen's, um, to play everybody at Danceteria nightclub in New York City. And like today, that seems like no big deal. But like at the time, dance music was like not a thing. Like it was a thing, but it was also not a thing. It was like a, it was a control thing that was like specific to like clubs like Danceteria, you know? And if you, I mean, Danceteria is like kind of an iconic place. It's like, if you ever go back and watch like old, like behind the musics of like really iconic people from the eighties and nineties, like a lot of times they'll mention Danceteria. Um, it was like a new wave institution for people um, like LL Cool J, uh, Cindy Lauper, uh, like the Smiths, Depeche Mode, Rob Zombie, RuPaul was like obsessed with Danceteria Duran Duran. And then in the nineties in one of its many like reincarnations, because it would open at all these different places when it would get shut down and it would be sort of reincarnated into like a different kind of dance club. It became like a, a hotspot for club kids. So like RuPaul sort of like took over and like, that whole sort of like group of people, um, you know, it was an institution. It was a really big deal for like music and pop culture in the eighties and nineties. And it was a really big deal to get your song played there because it was filled with people that were like helping shape culture. I mean, like you've like RuPaul and like Depeche Mode and they're listening to your music and dancing to it. You know, I mean, you never know what could happen. And this is kind of like exactly what happened for Madonna. This was the first step in her, really sort of like becoming discovered and you know this was the the first uh, domino if you will the first sort of flick of the domino and madonna's single was a huge hit at danceteria it convinced mark to um help her try and get a record deal because people loved her songs so much when he would play them and with the promise that he would be able to produce her first single um he was like, you know, I'll help you get a record deal if you promise that I basically can be a part of it. Like, he wanted a little bit of that coin. And not long after, Madonna was signed to Sire Records, and she was given a $5,000 advance and a $10,000 um, $10, in royalties for every song she wrote and put towards what would be her debut album. And uh, Madonna's debut album, which went through a whole series of changes, like firings, hirings, like there were people involved in it at the beginning that weren't involved in the end. And it was pretty insane. Um, it had a deadline of April of 1983. I mean, she basically reneged on her deal with Cayman. Like she promised him that he would be able to produce the album and he, he didn't. And um, she hired other producers and DJs to kind of help come up with enough songs to fill the album so that she would at least have something to like present to the label. Um, most specifically John Jellybean Benitez, who she ended up dating. John was like one of her first like real important relationships. People usually count 
John Jelly Beans Benitez as like Madonna's first like Madonna relationship as like you know a celebrity, and not like even a huge celebrity is like New York City like couch surfing Madonna. Um, he added instruments. He added some background vocal. He very specifically worked on Borderline, Lucky Star, and Holiday. The songs were already completed when he became involved, but he like completely reworked them and tweaked them and like cleaned them up and polished them and basically made them. I mean, he made them what they are now. He made them hits. And um, John has talked a lot about how difficult it was, like you know, but also fulfilling to work with Madonna and like craft her sound. And in an interview, he said, I just wanted to do the best job I could for her. When we would play back holiday or lucky star, you could see that she was overwhelmed by how great it all sounded. You wanted to help her, you know, as much as she could be a bitch when you were in the groove with her, it was very cool. It was very creative. And Madonna's debut album entered the billboard 200 at 198. And then it slowly kind of climbed up to number eight. And by 1984, the album had sold 2.8 million copies and made Madonna a household name. And here's the thing about the Madonna album. Like, it's definitely not my favorite, and this is a conversation that I want you <laughs> to never really start with me about what's my favorite Madonna album, because I truly believe it's like, it, with my entire heart, that it's what will turn me into like Eleven's mother from Stranger Things. Like, I don't know how far you guys are into season two of Stranger Things right now, but like, it'll turn into me just like rocking back and forth in a rocking chair for the next like 20 years, like, <laughs> just like murmuring the same words over and over, like, American Life, underrated album, ruined by its first single. Like, this rant, because American Life, controversial opinion, is, like, one of my top three favorite Madonna albums. I'm sick of defending it, and I'm I'm approaching 30, so I'm allowed to like whatever I want. And that's what I would rant. Like, it would just be a series of me just repeating American Life, American Life, American Life, ruined by its first single, ruined by its first single. Why did she have to rap? Why did she have to rap? <laughs> um ahead of its time ahead of its time anyway so as far as madonna's debut album it's not my favorite by any stretch but i thank god for it every day in my prayers because it's the sole reason that the music industry sort of took a chance on female dance you know pop driven 80s music which sort of trickled into the 90s obviously so people like you know jenna jackson we're given the chance to kind of pursue these like pop diva careers when that was something that wasn't even really, I mean, like before Madonna's debut album being a quote pop diva wasn't even like a thing. Like that wasn't, there was no such thing. And it's like weird to even imagine Madonna. I'm not, see, I'm not, I'm going to restrain. I need my misery here. I need Kathy Bates here to, to smash my angles when I get out of control. Cause I'm going to get out of control. I can already, we're only 19 minutes in and I'm already losing it. I'm going to lose my shit. We're talking about fucking Madonna. All right. But anyway, it's not one of my favorite albums, but it's extremely important. I thank God for it on a daily basis. And you know, it, it, it gave us such an important um, sort of like, I don't know, category of music in the music industry. Could you imagine if we didn't have pop divas? First of all, what would gay culture even be? What would, I mean, let's not go there. Um, It's beat to death also, but like, can we also talk about 
we can't talk about this era in Madonna's life without mentioning like her look and what it represented in the mid to late eighties. Like, you know, you can look back in sort of pinpoint moments in time when girls were influenced by different female pop stars and, you know, the way that they're in their style, maybe sort of influenced everyday fashion or, you know, trend fashion that you would see at the mall, sort of like in the early two thousands, like, you know, it was it was obvious that like Britney's like low rise jeans and like belly top as we called them back then, sort of like thing was something that influenced fashion and it influenced like the music industry and like it became sort of like a an institution, you know. But like that's so different in comparison to an entire decade being defined by your specific style. Like those are trends that became popular because of a person, but Madonna in the in the mid in the early to mid eighties, like her style defines the whole generation. And when any kid, no matter what their age, 10, 15, 20, you know, it doesn't matter. If you ask any child to dress up in an eighties costume, their immediate reference is Madonna without even knowing it. And that's how, you know, like, it was a little bit more than like a couple trendy items. It wasn't, you know, it's so far beyond like lace gloves and fucking side ponytails. Like Madonna, her style is what defines a whole generation of people, which is absolutely fucking insane. Um, Madonna's first major televised performance to reach a really huge mass audience, not her first television uh, interview or performance or anything by far, but the first really big moment in Madonna's career where like the whole country watched her at the same time. Um, she was, I don't even, I really, I'm going to become overwhelmed again. I'm sorry. Cause this is a big moment. She performed holiday and burning up on American bandstand with Dick Clark. And, um, she was there obviously to promote her album. Um, Dick Clark very famously asked Madonna what she hoped would happen, uh, you know, not only in 1984, but in the remainder of her professional life. And without hesitation, she told him that she wanted to rule the world. And this was like, this was only a few months before she would perform at the VMAs and basically set the tone for what her, you know, career would become and what that what MTV would become, um, which obviously we'll get to, but it's insane that she like, at that point in her career, like this poor kid who not even like a month prior was sleeping on people's couches and had nothing, you know, had the actually truthfully in her mind knew that she was going to like rule the world and be like this crazy influential iconic figure. Um, now this leads us into Madonna's next career venture, a little album that you've probably never heard of. It's very underground. Um, an album titled like a virgin. Can we tell First of all, I want to start off by saying something shocking to make you really sort of, I want to make sure you're paying attention. Okay. Like I want to like just swerve you off the road a tiny bit. I don't want to like wreck you. I just want to like jizz your wheel a tiny bit if you're driving. Okay. I don't love this album either. Now look, I like all of Madonna's albums. I rate them. You know what I mean? In my mind, I rate them every day. I feel like I wake up in the morning and just start immediately rate, rating the albums from least to, from least favorite to favorite. Um, 
By the way, this is stress bonding. Like, this is probably stressing you. If you're a Madonna fan and you're hearing me say this right now, like, you're having a visceral reaction. You're probably sweating. You're probably getting angry. You're wondering if you should pause this and go listen to a different podcast and then come back to it because you don't know if you want to deal with me right now. We're stress bonding. You'll, you'll, whenever you hear uh, anything about the Like a Virgin album, you'll think of me and we're stress bonded. Okay. <laughs> it's been known to connect people. Um, I don't know. I don't know why I don't like this album. I don't not like it. It's just, you know what it reminds me of? Like, you know, how? okay. For like horror fans, if you don't like horror movies, then this probably won't mean anything to you. But like this album to me sort of represents the time in Madonna's life before she really like was fully realized. And, like, all of the imagery at this time was really iconic. Obviously, it was a big deal. But, like, it's also, like, her character wasn't fully realized. It's almost like season one of a show when you're like, this humor is weird a little bit because these people don't know who they are yet. But you have an appreciation for it. And I have a huge appreciation from early Madonna. Of course. Are you kidding me? But it also kind of feels like in the Friday the 13th films how, like, in the beginning of them, Jason Voorhees doesn't wear his hockey mask and he wears like a paper sack over his head. You know what I mean? And it's not until the third one that he actually gets his mask and you're like, that's Jason, you know, like that's really him. And I'll definitely say like Madonna's debut album definitely felt like one of those moments where you're just like, this is a really powerful girl who's super talented. And all of these songs are literally iconic, but like now that you know, Madonna and you've known her for 30 something years, you realize that, like, she wasn't fully developed yet. Like, she hadn't really found her voice. She hadn't really learned how to, like, write music yet. And, like, Madonna is such an incredible songwriter, and she's so good at so many instruments, and she's such a good producer. Um, she's such an incredible dancer. There was just so much more to be... There was so much more to come. You know what I mean? And I do appreciate this time in her life, but it's just not my favorite. And I love that I felt that I needed to explain that in a way that like got me off the hook or something. Um, but for the Like a Virgin record, Madonna basically wanted to focus on, you know, she wanted to take a more creative control, more creative control of the project. You know, now that she had um, sort of perfectly crafted this image and achieved her goal of becoming this like household name, she wanted to she had a pretty intense like back and forth with Warner brothers about this. Like she wanted to control the production of this album and be, um, and be a primary producer. And I mean, like you can imagine what they probably thought of her when she like, this is like, I mean like, okay, I'm already like in like 2017 still, like you have somebody like Beyonce or something who like has a hard time, like has a push and pull with her record company because she wants to do things and they don't want her to do them blah, 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 blah. Like you still have that today. Imagine what it was like for this girl. There was no such thing as like a pop girl or like a pop dealer, a pop superstar. And like, she's like 20 something years old and basically telling them that she wants to like take over complete creative control of this album, like get all the money. I mean, like it's fucking insane. They probably were like, you're batshit crazy. We'll never, ever, ever do that for you. Um, and they didn't, um, <laughs> they basically told her no. And, uh, 
this is, I have a little excerpt here from, um, it's the, it's a like a virgin interview, um, in an early biography of hers, like back in the eighties, it says Warner brothers is, or this is actually from her. This is a quote from Madonna. She said, Warner brothers, Warner brothers records is a hierarchy of old men and it's chauvinist. It's chauvinist environment to be work. It's a chauvinist environment to be working in because I'm treated like a sexy little girl. I really had to prove them wrong, which meant not only proving myself to my fans, but to my record company as well. This is something that happens when you're a girl but it would never happen to print or Michael Jackson. I had to do everything on my own and it was hard to try and convince people that I was worth a record deal. After that, I had the same problem trying to convince the record company that I had more than once, more than a one shot that I was more than a one shot singer. I really had to fight to, to win. And, uh, I mean, look, Warner Brothers was, like, not ready at all to give Madonna that much freedom. It was unheard of, like I said, so they compromised. And Madonna got to choose her producers for the next album, so she didn't get to produce it herself. But she got to choose from, you know, now that she was with this big record company, she could basically have her pick of whoever she wanted. And she decided to work with Nile Rodgers, like, one of the most iconic record producers, songwriters, musicians of all time, like, was in the band Chic, um... <laughs> Le Freak. Um, he, you know, he produced records for Diana Ross, um, Duran Duran, Sugar Hill and the Gang, uh, B-52s. You know, this was a huge deal. And he was just coming off producing David Bowie's Let's Dance album. So this was like, uh, you know, this was, this was huge. And, um, also as far as like the imagery for the album, besides like the rosaries worn, by Madonna during her introduction, Like a Virgin was also one of the earliest moments in her career that you can trace back, like religious imagery used as part of her. She decided to like play on her name and the idea that she was like this Madonna whore, you know, like was she a slut? Was she a virgin? Was she a good girl? Was she bad? Like whatever. And uh, it was this sort of like, she was playing on this idea that she was this sort of like sexual thing to be desired by both men and women for different reasons. Um, everything from like the boy toy belt to the satin sheets, you know, everything was like perfectly crafted and the photos were taken by, uh, Steven Mazzell, who was famous for shooting Twiggy when she was 12 and, you know, had a million iconic photo shoots with so many like iconic, like rock stars and public figures. So this was a huge deal. And he ended up working with Madonna for, like years and years and years to come. And uh, this was a quote from her in reference to uh, the imagery and the religious stereotypes that she kind of exploited in the album, where she says, I've always loved to play cat and mouse with the conventional stereotypes. My Like a Virgin album cover is a classic example. People were thinking, who was I pretending to be the Virgin Mary or the whore? These were the two extreme images of women that I had known very vividly throughout my life. And I remember from my childhood and I wanted to play with them. I wanted to see if I could merge them together. Virgin Mary and the whore as one and all. The photo was a statement of independence. If you want to be a virgin, you are welcome to, but if you want to be a whore, it's your fucking right to be so. That's my housewife's tagline, by the way, I finally discovered it. If you want to be the virgin, you're more than welcome to. But if you want to be the whore, it's your fucking right to do so. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why I'm an an Auckland an Auckland housewife. But if you want to be a whore, it's your right to do so. Anyway, um, 
So the singles from this album included like a virgin, obviously, a material girl, angel, into the groove, and dress you up. All, you know, really great songs, obviously, like, you know, mean so much to Madonna's I mean, like a vir like a virgin, are you kidding me? Material girl, like these are the songs that you think of when you think of Madonna. I mean, especially like people who aren't Madonna fans, these are like these are the songs that you don't have to be a fan to know everything about, to know every lyric of like, these are, these are not deep cuts. These are like, this is like her version of like, you know, thriller, you know, this is like, these are who she, these songs are who she is. And Madonna's debut album. I'm sorry. Madonna's not debut album. Madonna's album debuted. Uh, oh, no, 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 wait, sorry. So she debuted like a virgin. You have to talk for a second here. At the MT, I don't know if you've heard of this award show. It's also very underground. It's, the, uh, it's called the Video Music Awards. It airs on MTV once a year. And um, on September 14th of 1984, this is where she wore her iconic white lace wedding dress, the wedding veil, the boy toy belt. And at the beginning of the performance, she simulated masturbating on stage. And this is really, to be honest with you, considered to be and I've read this before. I'm not like being dream. You know, I can be very dramatic and I can like fabricate things and, and be very theatrical and over the top. But like, I've read that MTV actually considers this to be the most important performance in the history of their network because it really helped shape, it helped shape MTV's identity, a network that was experimental that didn't really know who they were. That was like sort of trying to figure out like what they wanted to present themselves as Madonna really helped shape them as a network where like anything can happen and where artists could just go to like be really like free and outrageous and, you know, like ex sort of um, express themselves in whatever way they see fit appropriate or not, you know? And the real story, by the way, behind Madonna's VMA performance was that she had had a couple of drinks before. She was super nervous. Obviously this was like her premiering, a huge, first of all, a hugely controversial single, but also like this was a, a big deal. This was like the performance that was supposed to prove that she wasn't a one hit wonder, which is what everybody thought she would be. And she goes up on stage. One of her shoes accidentally falls off while she's like walking. So she decides to kick off the other shoe and slide down to the ground to make it less noticeable that she was barefoot. So the whole thing was supposed to be like a cover up. And then I mean, that was it. Like she just started rolling around and showing her underwear because she didn't know what else to do. And uh, her publicist has said that, you know, at that award show, there were industry people coming up to her and being like, you know, I hope that you have like a day job because your career is over. This is it for you. This girl will never recover from this. This is like going to go down as one of the most humiliating moments in television history. Um, and I mean, people really thought like this was going to end her career, which like, I mean, can you imagine like we're so jaded now and we're so used to like seeing moments like this on TV, but like imagine a world where something like this has never happened ever. The idea of somebody doing something outrageous like this on an award show is unheard of. Imagine what that feels like to be watching that for the first time in like American history, just fucking crazy. Um, so Madonna's first album was a huge mega success, but Like a Virgin was the album that really like launched her into the stratosphere. And 
the release of this album was actually delayed because sales from her first album were still so high that the record company was like, they didn't want to fuck that up. They had hesitation. So, you know, she was really upset about that. It pushed her album back a pretty good amount. But like, isn't that also fucking insane? We can't premiere your second album yet because the first one is still charting too much. Every single song on the album is like on the billboard. So we can't just like release another album. Cause that's, I mean, makes no sense. Um, so it was officially released on November 12th of 1984 and it debuted at number 70 on the billboard 200. And then in July of 1985, like a virgin became the first album in music history to become certified, uh, with, uh, let's see, it was 5 million copies sold in the U S. So it broke a Guinness record for its time. And Madonna also embarked on her first American and Canadian tour in April of 1985. Uh, she had the Beastie Boys as her opener. Um, there's like some really incredible stories about Madonna and the Beastie Boys. Like there are photos of them like hanging out while they are on tour, like, you know, throwing water balloons at each other and like having pizza parties and having like Nerf gun fights and just like being very eighties and fun and like, what an iconic fucking thing to be a part of the beastie boys opening for Madonna. Cause nobody knew who they were like, what in the actual fuck? Um, also, by the way, I thought this was really super interesting. Um, so Macy's in New York city was one of the stores that, uh, sold Madonna's tour merchandise ex- exclusively for this album. And, they literally had people lined up around the store all throughout the store and all throughout like outside around the building downtown. Like there were thousands of people in line waiting to buy Madonna merchandise. And it was reported that a like a Virgin tour t-shirt sold every six seconds for the entire duration of the tour. Like really think about that for a second. Every six seconds for months, a Madonna t-shirt sold. That is fucking insane. Sorry, people. Like, I am in another world right now. I'm, I'm basically, I don't even know that you're here anymore. I'm talking to myself. I'm having a conversation in the mirror. This is like, I'm spellbound. Actually, it would be a really good time to like stop and talk about Sean for a second before I get too crazy, right? I need to come down. Let me have a sip of my tea. I need to like calm the fuck down. Like I'm like on level 10. I'm reading a mile a minute. My heart's like racing out of my chest. Anyway, um, so Sean Penn made his film debut in 1981. He starred in the film Taps. But his first really big break came in 1982 when he starred in the movie Fast Times at Ridgemont High as the character Jeff Spicoli, iconic. And, like, we all know how, like, iconic Fast Times is. Like, definitely, you know, what you would consider to be, like, a sort of coming of age, you know, like, uh, one of those, like, generation-defining films. And the the irony of Fast Times is that it didn't really do well at the box office at all. It was only opened... 200 theaters. Um, But this is one of those films that like really performed well on VHS. You know, it was like at the beginning of that too, like movies that didn't perform well at the box office, but became like these big, huge giant cult classic films when they were released on tape. And 
Judd Spicoli became an extremely popular character amongst teenagers in the 80s um, because he was sort of a first of his kind. I mean, Judd Spicoli kind of helped, I guess, define like the 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 teen movie, like stoner thing. You know what I mean? That was like, um, that was something that, that Sean Penn sort of helped, uh, I guess, I don't know, popularize. Um, and this is an, a little quote here from Cam and Crow, uh, from Vanity Fair on the 35th anniversary of the film. He said, the word got out that there was this movie with this character who wore checkerboard vans, called his teacher a dick and ordered pizza into his room and people became obsessed. And like, Here's the thing, like, Sean's character, Jess Piccoli, is also known for popularizing the word dude as a slang term. And it's like, this is one of those weird things where, like, even with Madonna, like, uh, for both of them, it's the irony that that these two people found each other. Like, they're responsible for so many firsts, you know, and they're both so iconic and, like, threaded into, like, America's culture. And, like, it's crazy that things like this happen and then we just sort of like brush them off as like, yeah, I mean, Sean Penn invented the word dude, whatever. Sean Penn in a, a character in a movie popularized a word that is a part of, um, I mean, like dude is not even a slang term anymore. It's just, it's a word. It's just, it's a word we use and it came from a character in a movie. It also kind of helped create the demand for like similar teen movies it proved that they could be successful you know at the time like teen films didn't make money like this so nobody wanted to invest in them and like stars didn't want to be in them so it sort of helped pave the way for like john hughes per se to like you know sort of like take over the remainder of the decade doing this exact thing making these iconic teen films and in 1983, Sean starred in the film Bad Boys, which helped transition him from, you know, the guy who played the stoner in Fast Times to someone who can be taken seriously as a dramatic actor. I mean, I feel like you can always tell at the beginning of someone's career how well they'll be able to sort of navigate, you know, Hollywood and navigate, you know, um, the the public the perception of who they are and, you know, how they'll be able to play the game, if you will. And... There's so many actors who would have just taken the easy route of, like, continuing to play stoners, you know? Um, but he chose to do something completely different with his next film. Kind of like uh, Johnny Depp with 21 Drum Street. You know, he went from being this, like, heartthrob, like, you know, everybody loves this guy, sex symbol, teen beat, whatever, to them playing fucking Edward Scissorhands, you know? So, I don't know, I just think that's very interesting. That's pretty much all I have about Sean Penn at the beginning was great. I mean, there wasn't a lot going on. Sean Penn had only just recently got discovered. He was in a couple movies. Um, you know, Bad Boys was a huge deal, but, I mean, he hadn't had any, like, big, crazy Sean Penn mega blockbuster hits or anything like that. It wasn't by any stretch of the imagination, like, what Madonna's career was. I mean, he was mostly just known as that guy from Fast Times at Ridgemont, at Ridgemont High that was, like, you know a great actor who was, you know, it was like, Oh, all of a sudden this guy can actually really act too. That was like his thing at the time. He wasn't like breaking Guinness records like Madonna, but we do not have to talk about the relationship. Are you ready for this? Okay. So Madonna and Sean met, um, on the set of her music video for material girl in February of 1985. 
And I read that Sean liked her, but also sort of brushed her off when they met each other because, you know, she was used to getting a lot of attention from men. And that was his sort of tactic of getting her attention. And um, at the time, she was casually dating Prince. And she immediately gave that up for Sean. Like, whatever he did worked. She was head over heels in love with him from, like, the moment they met each other. And she's never not been honest about that. Like, even while married to Guy Ritchie, Madonna has been quoted as, of saying that, like, Sean Penn was the great love of her life, which is fucking insane. And it also has to be pointed out in the, you know, in the early to mid-80s, Sean Penn had acquired this reputation for being extremely short-fused and violent. And we, I have, like, there's a, we are going to get into Sean's violence. It's a lot. Um, not only with, like, industry people, but with the paparazzi specifically, he would just, like, beat the fuck out of these photographers. And this relationship is often described as a sort of, like, perfect storm situation, you know, to the point that the tabloids used to call them um, S&M and, uh, there was another one that had to do with the name Penn. I'll think of it when it comes to me, but they called them the S&M couple. And uh, this is where things get really interesting about these two. As soon as they became a couple, they were sort of like thrusted into the forefront of fame. Obviously, you know, this was a huge deal. Um, Sean had literally just become this really big star. Madonna was already at like an icon level of fame, just in her, you know, releasing her second album. And the thing is like, Sean had like a huge disdain for fame and for celebrity. He is truthfully one of those people that like just wanted to act and never got into this to be famous. And Madonna, on the other hand, is unapologetically attention seeking. And, you know, for a majority of her career, her goal was to be on the face of like every single magazine cover in this entire country. Like Madonna's goal was to be the most famous person in the entire world. So immediately you have this really unnatural sort of existence between these two people. Um, a very sort of like fiery, strong willed, determined um, personality type for both of them too, which like, again, like it's, it's a recipe truly for disaster. Like, I don't, I don't know. This gets so fucking buck, you guys. You have no idea. Um, and again, like I said, I mean, Sean was one of those people that really just, like, wanted to be an actor. Like, he had no ambitions of, like, becoming a tabloid person or anything like that. Like, he hated it. He absolutely despised it. And um, by the spring of that same year, Madonna had already taken Sean to meet her family in Detroit while she was there on tour. Um, she invited his parents to come see her show in LA during her like a virgin tour. Um, so they were moving super fast. I mean, they had this sort of like, let's immediately get married. One of those like celebrity relationships where like they literally get married in like a month and don't understand why that's not normal. So this wedding I'm warning you right now is one of the most, this wedding tops everything I've ever spoken about on this podcast. Okay. I'm just going to, I'm really, I feel confident saying that this wedding is fucking insane. Are you ready for this? I need a sip of tea because this is a lot. Okay. So Madonna and Sean got married on August 16th of 1985. There's so much to say. There's so much to say. And I hope that I cover it all. So they got married in Malibu at an estate 
Um, it was the film producer Kurt Unger's house. It was this big, beautiful, giant mansion on the side of a cove. Um, it was Madonna's birthday. And Sean, as I'm sure you can imagine, was psychotic about privacy and, you know, demanded the location be kept secret. And this is my favorite thing about this wedding. So they went through all this trouble to make sure nobody knew where they were going to be and, you know, to make sure nobody knew the guest list and blah, 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 blah. But Madonna had apparently had her team tip off the paparazzi so that they could get the photos of her walking down the aisle. So then before you know it, there are helicopters swarming the area. Lots of helicopters, by the way, like multiple helicopters flying closely to them and swarming each other. They were hovering so closely together that people were afraid that they would hit each other and crash on the guests. So imagine being the paparazzi that kills in one swoop. You kill Madonna, Cher, Carrie Fisher, Sean Penn, Christopher Walken. Like these are all the people that were there at the, at the, at the, at the wedding, by the way, by the way, I just want to make it clear. Madonna was there in a pink mullet eighties wig. Like, there's there's it's too much you can't write this shit madonna showed up at i'm sorry Cher showed up at madonna's wedding in a pink mullet wig and at the same time everybody in the audience is wondering if helicopters will crash on them because they're swimming and hitting each other above their heads this is where shit gets fucking buck is shit okay for, oh, I just, before I get to the craziest thing about this wedding, I should mention Madonna's wedding dress. So she wore this like really frilly white, very 80s, you know, very 80s wedding dress. Um, but here's where things get like very fun. She also wore a bolo hat, like a brown derby. And the, the fucking bolo hat had the veil attached to it. And then the veil, she wore it on the side of the bolo hat. So it sort of like cascaded over the side of her head all the way down her body. It's actually very chic. And um, so it's like so it's sort of like to the side. Like she wore a fucking bolo hat with a veil on it. I am dead. Now look. This is where shit really gets like very real. And if you aren't already like snacking on something, I really do suggest you like pause this. Like, head to the kitchen, grab something both salty and sweet, because you'll want a variety. If you're driving, like, pause this and stop at a drive-thru. Like, treat yourself to something. Get a little thing of fries or something. Get a Frosty. Like, whatever you need to do. Fuck, if you're at home listening to this and it's, like, after five or not, crack open a beer, pour yourself a glass of wine. Just whatever you need to do to feel relaxed. Like, you need to, like, prepare yourself for what I'm about to say. Okay. In the midst of the helicopters basically taking over this wedding, Sean Penn emerges from the house with a loaded gun, a handgun to be exact. Sean Penn stands on the edge of this cove, this like cliff. Okay. This is not an action movie. This is his wedding. He starts trying to shoot down the helicopters he tried to fucking kill them. And in a 1992 interview that he did with Entertainment Weekly, he admitted to hoping that he would shoot them down because he would have loved watching the helicopters burn and see their bodies melt inside. 
That's a quote from Harshan to sort of lead you into the fucking psychopath that this man truly is. I'm telling you, like, you really, you think you know someone and you don't. Uh, you don't you don't know Sean Penn. You guys have no idea who he is. So in 1986, Madonna released her third album, True Blue, which she dedicated to Sean. And in the liner notes, she wrote to the coolest guy in the universe. Um, and the album was so was extremely heavily influenced by her relationship, um, by how in love she was. True Blue is also an album that most people describe as like the most feminine and like girly Madonna album. Cause she was just like in love. It's like true blue is a valent. It's basically like a Valentine's day card to Sean Penn. And this album also cites the end of, um, what you would call consider Madonna's Minnie mouse era <laughs> in the beginning stages of Madonna's career. She sang in this really unnatural octave that was like very high. And in true blue, you know, her goal was to me be taken seriously as like, an adult performer, you know, she wanted an, a more adult sound and she wanted older people to appreciate her music. So she deepened her voice and sort of sang in like her more natural register. And that was something that continued from that point forward. She never really went back to singing in that like first and second album, like super high pitched tone. This album's singles included uh, Live to Tell, Papa Don't Preach, True Blue, Open Your Heart, my all time favorite Madonna song, and La Isla Bonita. Um, which by the way was written for Michael Jackson and the song live to tell was featured on Sean Penn's film at close range, which just so happens to be my favorite Sean Pilm, <laughs> my favorite Sean Pilm. Uh, it's the best Sean Penn film in my opinion. He's incredible. And if you've never seen it, it's, uh, him and Christopher Walken and Christopher Walken is his dad and he's super abusive and basically forces him to like get into crime. It's really sad. And like, Live to Tell, even though the song is supposed to be written about, like, Madonna's look changing in the industry and, like, her being tied to, like, her appearance and people, like, allowing her to change her appearance. The lyrics of the song just so happen to, like, perfectly match, like, what's going on in that movie. And I'm telling you, like, when it plays in the film, like, you cry. It's really good. And, um, in 1986, Madonna and Sean starred in the film Shanghai Surprise, which you know, it opened to iconically negative reviews. Like Shanghai surprise is like the, the Geely before Geely, if you will. It's known as one of those movies that the reviews are so iconically bad that it's iconic. You know what I mean? Shanghai surprise is so bad that it's actually good. And it won Madonna, her first golden Razzie wouldn't be her last uh, for worst actress. And um, Sean admitted to being drunk for a majority of the filming. Now, I'm just going to go through a list here of Sean's arrests because they're all so fucking insane that um, I just want to spout them off. So the first one came while actually filming Shanghai Surprise. Sean and his bodyguard um, held a photographer over a nine-story building, and he was almost charged with attempted murder. The following year, he hit a photographer in the skull with a rock and punched a reporter in the face at the same time. Uh, the following year, he attacked Madonna's longtime friend and former music collaborator, David uh, Walensky, uh, because he caught him hugging Madonna outside of a nightclub. Mind you, this is like a 10-year friend. Um, apparently, he beat the shit out of him so bad um, 
that the guy, I mean, like, probably could have most likely pressed some sort of, like, murder charge. He beat him with a chair. He stomped his face. Um, he punched him in the face repeatedly. Apparently, he straddled him and punched him in his face repeatedly. Um, he was then put on probation. And then while filming the cop movie Colors, good film, by the way, um, Sean punched an extra in the face for photographing him. He very shortly after got arrested for driving under the influence. He was sentenced to 60 days in jail and he served five. And then he left early to film a movie, which is insane. Um, he then went back to serve 28 more days, but he was released early for having good behavior. And this sparked this whole, one of the first like con- controversial uh, conversations in this country about like celebrity treatment as far as um, the legal system and how they're able to sort of get off. I mean, he had back to back to back. First of all, he tried to kill a guy. So like already he should have, I mean, like if you or I held somebody over a fucking ban, a, a balcony, a nine story balcony and attempted to kill them, I'm pretty sure we would get in trouble. You know what I mean? So the fact that he went to jail and then they let him leave to film a movie for months and then just decided as a good person, that he'd go back, you know, on his own. He was like, I'll go back to jail. Show him who's boss. And then they're like, no, Sean, you don't have to stay. You've done your time. and You've been a good boy. Fucking insane. Um, and this was like around the time also that Madonna sort of started to become terrified of him. Uh, and, you know, her friends were giving all these exclusive to the press about, you know, how she was living in fear. And like, especially after he beat up her friend, like that was sort of the first, the first moment of her, I think, seeing like who he really was. And, um, whoa, what up, puberty? Uh, Madonna's Aunt Elsie, who, like, if you're a Madonna fan, then you know, like, her Aunt Elsie is kind of, like, she's a matriarchal figure in the, in the, uh, Ciccone family. Like, she is everything. She's sort of like a Caroline Manzo. She did an exclusive with People Magazine where she talked about how terrified Madonna was of him and how jealous Sean was of her. If you think about it, like, Sean Penn is pretty open about the fact that he is, like, a maniacally jealous person. He's jealous to the point of it it will be the thing that kills him. And at this time, Madonna is one of the most iconic celebrity figures in the entire world of all time. She's ranking in tons more money than him. And she's the one... She's the, the the pants wearer in the relationship as far as the public goes. It's Madonna and her boyfriend, Sean Penn. It's never the other way around, you know? And I think that that had a huge effect on him and her and, you know, how he was able to sort of, like, exist with her. Like, he couldn't handle it. And um, Madonna's Aunt Elsie said, you can't get along. He said, if you can't get, she said, if you can't get along, why prolong the agony? I would say Sean is intensely jealous of her and it's dangerous. Um, he was like showing up to recording sessions, uh, while she was collabing with male artists, he was like monitoring her trailer. So he was known for showing up on any sort of like movie set or video set she was on and he would watch her trailer, not go in with her and hang out with his fucking wife. He would sit and watch it to see who went in and out of it. Now, I have to kind of speed along to their divorce because 
that was, I mean, their relationship was just a series of him getting arrested and them being super famous. Um, they spent not much time together at all, especially after he started becoming super violent. So they were barely ever together. Um, Madonna is pretty famous for saying that like they were separated way before they were separated. Like they barely spent any time together during the time that they were actually married. So it's been said that Madonna presented Sean with divorce papers on Thanksgiving of 1987. Um, they officially filed in December and Madonna's longtime publicist released a statement saying there's no one direct, there's no one direct incident leading up to this. It was a series of cumulative pressures. There were many moments in their marriage when it was shaky and Madonna was finally forced to face the reality of the situation that they were not happy together. And the, the press sort of celebrated this. They were happy. You know, it was kind of like when Britney uh, announced she was leaving KFED and people were like fucking, I mean, do you remember on the view when like they had confetti fall from the ceiling because Britney was leaving Kevin Federline and they felt like she was being saved. It was sort of the same thing. People were like, thank God, get the fuck out of this crazy relationship. This guy's insane. People also wondered if Sean would derail her career to the point of it being like, where they couldn't fix it, basically. People thought, like, is there is there ever going to be a point where he's arrested enough times that, like, you know, that she leaves him, or is he just going to bring her down and, like, completely ruin everything she's worked for? Um, so in January of 1988, 1988, Madonna started dating John F. Kennedy Jr., and she went on this weird press tour with Sandra Bernhard. Now, this was definitely, like, calculated on Madonna's part, and she's, like, pretty much admitted to this, she did these things to make Sean jealous. Um, if you have never seen the iconic, iconic appearance that Sandra Bernhard and Madonna make on David Letterman, if I don't remember to post it in the Emotionally Broken Psychos Facebook page, please remind me because I forget. Please, I'm telling you, this is a moment in time that you will, I can't do it justice. I can't really describe it in any way that would like make sense. You just have to see it, but it's explosive and it's fucking amazing. Um, one of her many iconic moments on David Letterman. So now we need to talk about the assault. We're finally here. The dark part of this whole thing, the fucking assault. Okay. So not long after the divorce, Sean had basically become completely unhinged. Um, it was reported around this time that Sean was following one of Madonna's former boyfriends, Bobby Martinez, around with a gun and stalking him. Um, he was also following Madonna and all her close friends to like dinners and to the recording studio. Like he was stalking her and he was always loaded. Like he always had a gun with him. And Madonna told the police that after this incident, um, Christopher Andrews, who wrote an, un an unauthorized bio on Madonna, described a shooting range that, that Sean had built in their basement in their Malibu home, where apparently Sean had these photos of her exes, including JFK, um, Prince, Jellybean Benitez, the guy from her first album, Sandra Bernhard, and... I think Sandra was like, oh, by the way, he would shoot the pictures. Like he literally built a gun range in their house and would shoot photos of people that she interacted with. And 
you know, I think the men were one thing, but like, it's been said that the fact that she was like flaunting this lesbian relationship on TV and making him look like an idiot was like the thing that really sent him over the fucking edge. And the first allegations of abuse came when a bunch of club goers saw Sean slam Madonna up against a wall at a nightclub. They saw this firsthand and multiple sources saw it. And in June of the following year, Madonna was checked into Cedar sinai Hospital after Sean struck her in the skull with a fucking baseball bat. And this gets, like, so much worse. They spent Christmas apart. Um, she celebrated Christmas with <laughs> Christmas with Sandra Bernhard, and he was photographed um, at a strip club, and I guess he, like, took the stripper home and spent Christmas with a stripper alone. Um, he had reportedly called her a bunch of times and left all these really abusive messages on her answering machine that the people who worked in her house then tried to leak to the press um, where he was like threatening her life and saying that he was going to kill her and that she wouldn't make it through the holidays and all this crazy shit. And this is where shit gets like very, very fucking real. So on December 28th, Sean broke into their mansion that she was now living in alone because that was agreed upon in their separation And the story, like I said earlier, this is Hollywood folklore. And as I've said before, Madonna has disputed it and it took her 30 years to do so. Part of me believes that she just did this for Sean. Um, There are police officers and doctors and people who have come forward, you know, treated her the night that this took place. So whether it happened the exact way that the press says that it happened or not, something did happen. Um, She did have to be treated by doctors and she did, you know, go to the police. And I mean, this, these are facts. Like this is not, you can't, I don't know. These are facts. Like he beat her up. So the story goes that he had apparently, he showed up drunk. He broke into the house. He bound and gagged her, tied her to a chair with this like hemp rope and then physically and verbally abused her for several hours. And um, she convinced him to then let her go. She fled from the house in her 1957 Thunderbird that he got her for her birthday. And um, she went to the police station. And this is why I believe this to be true. Maybe not like exactly as it's written that he like bound her and gagged her. Like maybe like the theatrics aren't there, but he definitely like did something to her. Um, Bill McSweeney was the sheriff at the police station the night that Madonna came in. And he said, he, he said, I hardly recognize her as Madonna, the superstar. She was weeping. Her lip was busted open and bleeding. And she had obviously been struck several times. And, uh, Madonna apparently warned the police that Sean always carries a gun on him, that he came over with a gun and that he threatened her with it. So they knew he was armed and um, they surrounded the mansion and ordered him to come out and surrender He was led away in handcuffs and told the police at the police station that Madonna exaggerated the story because she was jealous and angry that he spent the holidays with a stripper. So, like, again, this is why we'll, like, never really know what happened. Um, Madonna chose not to press charges that night, and, you know, she did officially follow through with the divorce. She filed again in January of 1989. So... Like I said, she retracted the divorce and then filed again. 
I've never had, we've never talked about that before. I've never had a couple do that before so far in this podcast. I just want to really quickly read you before we end this. I want to read the lyrics. Um, there's some of the lyrics to the song that I mentioned earlier, Till Death Do Us Part. This is a song that Madonna wrote about her marriage to Sean. And she didn't feature it on an album until like a prayer, which makes sense because this was the album that came out right after their divorce. And, um, you know, I think that with like the Pepsi controversy and the, the like a prayer stuff and the black Jesus and the burning crosses and all this stuff, I think that this sort of got brushed under the rug. Um, people don't really talk about this song at all, but it's, incredible it's an incredible song and i mean it really i'll just read you some of the lyrics it says i'm gonna try and not and read i'm gonna try and not like sing read this because in my mind i want to i want to read it to the melody of the song but like that would just be singing um it says our luck is running out of time you're not in love with me anymore i wish that it would change but it won't because you don't love me no more you need so much, but not from me. You turn your back in my hour of need. Something's wrong, but you pretend you don't see. I think I interrupt your life. When you laugh, it cuts me just like a knife. I'm not your friend. I'm just your little wife. They never laugh, not like before. She takes the keys. He breaks the door. She cannot stay here anymore. He's not in love with her anymore. The bruises, they will fade away. You hit so hard with the things you say. I will not stay and watch your hate as it grows. You're not in love with someone else. You don't even love yourself. Still, I wish you'd ask me not to go. He takes a drink. She goes inside. He starts to scream. The vases fly. He wishes that she wouldn't cry. He's not in love with her anymore. But she's had enough. She says the end. But she'll come back. She knows it then. A chance to start all over again until death do us part. I mean, like, come on. It's amazing to me that nobody knows that this song exists. It was, like, not popular at all. And it's incredible. And like I said, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, if you've ever had any questions about if this really happened, like that song kind of tells it all. I'm going to end this on a positive note because that was literally so dark. Madonna and Sean are friends now. Um, they have this weird friendship that people continue to sort of mistake for some sort of rekindling of their relationship. And it's weird that people fetishize this unhealthy relationship so much. Um, Sean Penn sued Lee Daniels a couple years ago for defamation because Lee Daniels falsely asserted and implied that Penn had guilty was guilty of violence towards women. And he pointed out that, you know, in, in his court documents, he had never actually been charged, charged for um, any sort of a domestic assault. And that was only because Madonna chose not to. And Madonna came to his defense in a sworn affidavit saying, Sean has never struck me. He never tied me up or physically assaulted me. And any uh, report to the contrary is completely outrageous, mal malicious, reckless, and false. And in December of 2015, Madonna and Sean made a public appearance at a charity event where he handcuffed her on stage. And Madonna made a joke to the crowd that she would marry him again if he bid on a necklace for $150,000 that went towards charity, which he did. And Madonna also posted a photo of her son Rocco on her Instagram um, and like a Hawaiian shirt. You know, Rocco has really long. Well, he used to have really long blonde hair and it said Jeff Spicoli is alive and well in the south of France. Um, she'll post photos um, of them on his birthday saying like, you know, look at us, us Leos. I can't believe this was so long. I mean, she they, they have this very sacred relationship. And Sean has said that he, you know, he's a very close relationship with his ex-wife. 
and that they're very close. And I mean, I guess all, you know, all's well ends well or whatever. Um, I don't know. I, I don't wish for them to get back together. Uh, I guess maybe now it will be a lot different. They're in such different places in their life. And, you know, Sean's violence has really toned down a lot. Like he's not that same guy. And he's sort of known now for like, his approach is to sue people, you know, like he'll just like sue people that fuck with him. You know, he doesn't go out and hold them over like balconies or anything anymore. He's changed y'all. Um, but you guys, it's an hour, it's an hour and 12 minutes. And that was, uh, episode 29 of the Smush Room. I really hope you'd enjoyed it. I really hoped you would enjoy it. Uh, that was really fun to talk about. And I really hope that I did it justice. Madonna, uh, you're listening. I hope that I didn't leave out any details. Girl, if you have any insight, if you want to like hit me up and did Sean tie you to a chair, you know, was there abuse? What was the sex like? How big is Sean Penn's penis? I'm like good for any just kind of smidgen of detail. Um, and this, by the way, will always go down as like my favorite wedding that I will ever talk about on this podcast. Oh, I forgot to mention at the wedding, Sean shot into <laughs> Sean while he was shooting at the um, at the photographers. He also shot messages into the sand with his gun. And then he went and found a stick and wrote obscenities all over the sand so that they couldn't sell the photos, which like, I don't know why he didn't just assume that they could blur them out. But um, I also love that small detail. And I love you guys. And I love this podcast. And I love my life. Actually, I don't hate my life right now. But I love you. And I love this. And I love Madonna. I don't love Sean Penn. And that's all I've got to say. You guys are my sweet, sweet, sweet angel babies. And I will talk to you next week. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.